0: Well, if you would open your Bibles um, or just look in your bulletin at Ephesians, uh, we're in chapter 2 now, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. And as you recall, our sermon series is titled, Identity in Christ, in this Letter Paul helps the Christian church in Ephesus as well as us here today to understand just who we are in Christ, that that our identity flows out of who we are in Christ. You know, uh, many of you here know this, but some of you are kind of new to Grace Church. Uh, Our motto here at Grace Presbyterian Church is this, alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. That's our motto. It's not just do it. All right? That's Nike. We're alive in Christ. There's other passages in the Bible you could look towards to seeing how we were once dead and now made alive. You could look at Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 2. But God in his providence has given his people this word before us this morning so that we can know just who we are in Christ. That we are Saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Lord, we grant that we are feeble creatures. We have intellect, but, oh, our intellect is so short of what it must be to to try to even begin to comprehend uh, who you are, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we do know that you have given us your Spirit and you've given us your Word, that we may know who we are in Christ Jesus and what it means to be alive in Christ. I pray your Spirit would open our eyes. For those who are here who are still dead in their sins, I pray that you would give them spiritual life this morning. For all of those who've been made alive, I pray that we be reminded of your the riches of your grace, which is immeasurable. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a story about a British conference of comparative religions. And during this conference, that all kinds of experts were gathered. And part of the conference, what they were seeking to do was, was to come up with just what was the special contribution of Christianity to the world. And various possibilities were excluded, like the incarnation. You know, there's other religions that talk about God or God's becoming human. The resurrection, There's other religions which talk about some people being raised from the dead. And and the discussion went on and on and on until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And when he had discovered that his colleagues were trying to address this question, he responded forthrightly. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. Grace is the unique contribution of Christianity. It's easy says C.S. Lewis, and I guess he's right, we can't agree, it's kind of easy. Then again, grace can be hard, hard to comprehend, hard to see our need for, hard for us to give. And yet, grace is to be the center of our lives. Last week, we sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was Lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I, I see. We sing about grace. Our church is named grace. Uh, we're saved by grace. What, what, does that, what does that mean? This text this morning that we're going to look at, these wonderful words from Paul, we're going to um, try to press into our hearts so we can more fully understand God's grace towards us. And as we do that, I think we're going to be both challenged and comforted. Uh, for in these words, we're going to see that we were once dead. Dead to God, dead in sin, and yet God in Christ made us alive and all by his grace. For by grace you have been saved. So we're going to look at, and we're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we're going to look at dead by nature, uh, alive by grace, and then living by grace. Dead by nature, alive by grace, living by grace. First, dead by nature. You know, the gospel is an equal opportunity offender. It offends both the irreligious and the religious. The gospel offends the irreligious because they defy being told that there is a God, that they are held accountable to. And it offends the religious because they are offended that you would judge them as someone who hasn't quite lived up to God's standards. I'm doing everything just fine, the religious would say. But Paul, in reminding this church in Ephesus, he's also reminding us and teaching us just how dire our circumstances are apart from God's mercy. He tells us here that everyone who is born is born dead. And therefore, we are utterly dependent upon God's action of mercy towards us if we are to be Alive. We see it in verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what is Paul saying here? We were once dead physically? No, he's, he's not saying that. No, it's not a physical death. He's referring to a, a spiritual death. Paul is saying with no uncertain terms that a life without God is living death. Life without God is living death. It is to go through our days dead on the inside though alive alive on the outside now to properly discuss this, we kind of got to go back to the very beginning of the bible where They were reminded that man and woman were made in god 's image, uh, made with a, a alive both physically and spiritually, flourishing in the garden with a relationship that that um, words could probably hardly even capture. Uh, we, uh, it's it's uh, a relationship with God where where all that they did was intertwined with their knowledge of him and their love for him. And God who cared for them did speak into Eden and he said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, any, but, but this one tree of knowledge of good and evil, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying stay away. For if you eat of this fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Now, when you read through the rest of the scenes there, you realize, well, they did eat of it and they They didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. The same God whom they used to run to in the cool of the afternoon to share their day with, to to speak with, to delight in, now they're running from and hiding from, alive on the outside but dead on the inside. What Adam and Eve demonstrated is this, that you can believe in God and have a sense that God exists and yet still be spiritually dead on the inside. In verses 1 and 2, he says, you were dead. But by the time we get to verse 3, we notice that he includes himself in all of us. He says, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I think we see this all around us here where we live here in the Hamptons on any given day there's men and women sitting in their cars or sitting in their in their living rooms and they're they're wondering why do I feel as bad as I do I mean my work week was wasn't all that bad or my week at school wasn't all that bad and yet I still feel empty on the inside I still feel this paralyzing anxiety that, that's pervasive. Even though I'm successful by, by worldly standards, there's still something in me where I, where I don't feel complete. And, and the answer is right here in our text. It's, it's a life without God is living hell. Life without God is living death. Now, in our modern world, especially, in, we're rich in America, all right? Uh, in our modern world, we have so many conveniences that numb us to our spiritual death. Uh, it's so easy just to run for a nice meal at Bobby Van's, you know, or, or to take a quick trip to Costa Rica or, or get that new car with the heated leather seats, which are pretty nice, by the way. Um, we have all these things that we can do in which to numb us to our spiritual death. Paul describes this very reality in verses 2 and 3. i We're not going to go into a whole lot of detail. I'll just remind you what he says. He says, We once walked in this way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul is describing the numb drifting that is common to all mankind because of our spiritual death. The spirit that is now at work in this world is, works to powerfully numb us to the reality that we need to be unnumbed from. You know, which is that we are spiritually dead to God. And Paul says this. This is where people, a lot of people, get give kickback. But Paul says this isn't just something we be. Became. It wasn't like we were born all nice and fluffy and kind and gentle and, and over time we became dead spiritually. He says that this is how we were born. At the end of verse 3, Paul states that this is how we are by nature. This is... I know this is kind of hard for some people to grasp their heads around. I know before I came to Christ, this was something I would say: "Who are you to say that that uh, pe- uh, that people are like this? People are people are born good." I, I just now that I've had kids, I just point to them, right? I mean, I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. All right, one of them's here in the room. So, but the truth is, all right, um, you know, think of it this way. I use this illustration all the time with our kids. Do we have to teach them right or do we have to teach them wrong? We have to teach them what's right. Why? Because what's wrong comes naturally. You don't even have to tell a child what a lie is, and you could see it in their eyes when you you busted them at, at you know two years old, and, and they turn and they do this look, and, and you realize you just caught your poor precious good little kid lying to you. You don't we don't have to t- we don't have to teach our kids to do what is wrong; it comes naturally. Why? Because by nature, this is who we are. I know some of you might have a problem with that. I just don't give up on the message just yet. But I mean, that is the condition of all of humanity and we're numb to that Paul says this is who we are by nature people will say you know how dare you say that I'm not good They'll say, you know, I, I know I, there's a couple things I could maybe improve in my life, but how dare you judge me and say I'm not good? How dare you do that? You don't even know what I did. The other night, if you only knew how good I was. The other night, there was a TV show on, and it was, a, it was the 800 number at the top of the screen, and I saw these poor, disadvantaged children, and I, and I looked on them with pity, and, and, and I, 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 I called. And you know what? You don't know this, but I do about myself. I sponsor a child in Africa. So don't you dare come after me with these words that I'm not a good person. How dare you say that? Scripture says that while these altruistic actions may be produced from sympathy and remorse, they're not works of faith. Clyde Snodgrass states, if God is the giver of life, Every act that ignores God is sin, no matter how good it is. Scripture teaches us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. My friends, the good works of the believer are different than the good works of the unbeliever. The good works of an unbeliever, they do, not, they, they, they do not spring forth from faith. But the good works of the believer emerge out of this faith reality that has come upon their lives. And so this is what Paul is showing us, the state of the human condition, is that everyone is born dead. And because we're born dead into our sins and, and, and trespasses and sins, it, We get these bone-chilling words where we read in verse 3, by nature uh, we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And these are are bone-chilling words, are they not? By nature we are children of wrath. This is where a lot of people, again, will say, Pastor, here's where you lose me, you know? Uh, God's not an angry God. I like what, uh, like Tantius wrote, he's an early Christian writer, he was a um, mentor, or um, he was uh, an advisor to, to Emperor Constantine, and he wrote a treatise on the anger of God. And here's the words he wrote, he said, he who does not get angry does not care which a lot of modern people will say, well, of course God's caring, but he doesn't get angry. But I would like to suggest to you that God's anger or his wrath, which is, which is a settled anger, in our minds we think of anger, we think of like a, like a face of someone all turning red and steam's coming out of their ears and it's unrighteous and they're just blowing their steam. And that, That's not uh, God's anger. Uh, it, God is very settled in his anger though. But what I'd like to suggest is, is that love and, and wrath are not incompatible. Consider for example, uh, for example, all of the residents of Newtown, Connecticut and all the parents who lost their, their children um, a little over a year ago in that horrible incident in which Adam Lanza came in and just shot a bunch of, of kids. The loss that he created. Would you not agree that the parents and the townspeople have every right, justifiably, to be angered at Lanza? Well, of course. Now, That anger flows out of what? Out of love. Out of love for those kids and for the teachers whose lives were lost. Snodgrass writes, As difficult as it may be to conceive, the wrath of God is an expression of his love and deep attachment to his people. So we must come to realize that God's love and his anger his wrath are not incompatible. God's anger flows from his holy love. Consider the antibodies that are in your body. You know, we have some scientists here. They could probably throw out the numbers, but there's like billions and billions of antibodies. All right, no one's shaking their head. I think that's right. But, you know, at this very moment, you don't know this, but my middle child, Lily, has strep throat. We know this because this morning we looked at her throat and it's all white and red and crazy stuff. So we, we have um, quarantined her in my office. So um, that's where she is right now. But in this very moment the antibodies in her body are angrily attacking uh, the infection in her body. In a similar way, that's how God is towards anything that is unholy. God is a holy God. His proper action is to fight against anything that is evil or unrighteous or or unholy. God's uh, stance towards sin is much like antibodies in your body. Now, thankfully... God is not like the antibodies in your body. He is, he's, he's patient. He is long-suffering. God is very tolerant of our sin. If he, if, if he weren't so, we would all have been dead a long time ago. That's what we hopefully need to see. So this is who we are by nature, and, and this is the circumstances that every human being finds himself in, that, that they're desperately in need of God's mercy. Now... I told you the gospel is an equal opportunity offender. That's kind of hard stuff, isn't it? So let's move on to the next point, um, being alive by grace. God, who is rich in mercy and full of great love, has made us alive by his grace. Today's Super Bowl Sunday, and so I'm going to use a little football uh, analogy here, but... I'm sure, you know, a lot of you guys are football fans. So, and, and I'm sure at some point in time, your team made a huge comeback victory. At, at halftime, you're down by like 20 plus points. And you know what it is? You're like tempted just to just like turn it off, right? But, but in the second half, they, they come alive. They start playing really, really well. They beat up the other team. They win the victory. They tear down the goalposts. I hope you pick up on something. That's what we see here in, in our passage. Look at verse four. Begins with a but. A but with one T, all right? But but God. You. You were dead. D E A D. Dead. But God. God made us alive together with Christ. If you have a pen, and not with your pew Bible, but with your bulletin, if you would underline in verse 4 the word God, God. And then go to verse 5, and then underline the words made us alive, and then with Christ. This is the main idea of the entire passage. But God made us alive with Christ christ christian if you are in christ this is your reality you have been made alive with christ the question for all of us here then is have you had a but god moment has there been a point in time in your life when you saw yourself in dead in an absolute need of god's mercy and you've cried out to him for christ's cleansing work on the cross have you had a but god moment We must see that this is all by grace. Did you pick up on the parenthetical statement in verse 5? I know those are big words for a Sunday morning, a parenthetical statement. All right, so we see that, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He repeats this phrase in verse 8 as well, and we'll cover a little more then. But real quickly, what is grace? What is grace? Often people respond that, that grace is God's God, uh, God is unmerited favor grace is unmerited favor that is you don't earn it you have some status that you don't earn and 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 that is true but there's more to it grace is undeserved merit where demerit is actually deserved we deserve justice from god we deserve demerit but instead he gives us merit in christ that's what grace is my friends god shows us mercy he doesn't have to but he does and what we need to understand is that this work of God's grace is entirely God's work. This is his work. You know, Christians often make this mistake. There's this analogy, this illustration that, that floats around, no pun intended, uh, that this is what God does for you when he saves you. It's like you're, you're out in the ocean, and you're, you're flailing, you're drowning, you're, you're trying to keep your head above water, you're barely making it, and along comes this Jesus guy on a boat, and he's got one of those big life rings, they don't use those anymore, but with a, with a rope on it, and he throws it out to you, and you're flailing, and you go, oh yeah, great, and you reach out, and then as Jesus pulls you, you, you kick a little, and you make it in. You know, no, that's not what we see here. Why is that? Why is that image wrong? Because dead people can't grab anything. A more proper illustration is you in the ocean, but you're not flailing, you've settled dead to the ocean floor. And Christ jumps in and gets your body And pulls it out and breathes life into you. That's a more accurate picture. That's what Paul is showing us here. We're dead. Dead people cannot reach out. But here's here's what God has done for us. If you're a Christian here, and you say, "But I believed. I had faith." That he's talking about faith. Well, yeah, you have faith. But guess what? That's that's God's gift to you. We're gonna look at that in a minute. But but um. You would not have believed unless God had not rescued you and brought you back and given you spiritual life. You are able to have faith in Christ because Christ has made you alive so that you may have faith. Some of you need to think on that a little bit longer. Paul clarifies this gracious work of being alive in in verses 4 through 7. I'm going to run through it real quickly. We see the cause of God's grace, the accomplishment, and the purpose. What is the, the cause of God's grace that he would make us alive? Verse 4 tells us what motivated God. And there's two things, God's mercy and God's love. That's his motivation. Not anything that you did. Oh, I just knew that so-and-so would turn out just well if I helped him out a little bit. No, you're saved by God's uh, mercy and by his love and that alone. You know, the world, will tell you, the world is full of people who will tell you... Um, Well, God must be this way. God's got to be merciful. After all, we do make a few mistakes, so he has to have a little bit of mercy in there for us. In other words, mercy is God's duty, right? But here's the problem. When you think that God owes you mercy and that mercy is God's duty towards you, will you ever describe God's mercy as being rich? Probably not. And that's how Paul describes it here. He says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive. The Christian has come to realize that he or she has no claim upon God to demand that God be merciful to him or her. And it's not until you see that you really deserve justice that you will ever come to treasure his rich mercy. It'll always be something where he just kind of owned me. I've been kind of good after all, not like those other people. The Christian has not come to see God's uh, mercy as duty, but rather God's delight. God is rich in mercy. The second cause of God's grace towards us is, is his great love. Verse 4, because of the great love with which he has loved us. God is rich in mercy and his love is great. Now, the word great can have a lot of meanings. In one sense, it means vast. This is a big love. God's love is big. But, love, uh, but great also speaks of a quality, right? For instance, I mean, I really like chocolate, you know. And, you know, I can get by with a Hershey bar, right? Problem is, I'll probably eat the whole thing. You know, I mean, just, just to, to cure my chocolate fix, I would need the whole Hershey bar. But if you were to give me just a a bite of a really rich, high-cocoa-content chocolate, I I would be satisfied with just the smallest amount. So too with God's love. There's a qualitative greatness to the love of God. There is no love uh, that is equal to the love of God. Yes. Yes. All right. And then God's love is also a powerful love. God's love, love is, a, is a noun, yes, love, but love is also a verb. Out of God's love, it's a powerful love, a love that, that is able to raise Jesus from the dead and give us new life. So this is this great love, this, this vast, this unequaled, powerful love that God works to, to mercifully make us alive. That's the cause of God's grace to us. It's not us, it's his love and his mercy. Now we see the accomplishment of his grace. Verse 5 and 6 shows this to us. We've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with Christ. We've talked about this before, but it speaks of our Paul is speaking of our union with Christ. Six times in these ten verses we see the words in Christ or in him and so far through this letter we've seen it like thirty times already. Christian, understand this. Your salvation experience isn't just you looking at Jesus and saying into the past and, and in some day that you came to believe and just pointing to Jesus and saying, I've got a Savior over there. Huh? He's that, that one Jesus, he's over there, he's up in heaven now. That's not the picture Paul's presenting us with. Paul is saying that you have been made alive with Christ, but, but first you were dead. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and, and by virtue of your faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, your very Christ's very goodness, that those days when he walked the earth full of peace, joy, and love and perfection, you God God has united you to that perfect life of Christ. And that when Christ um, was, was hanging on the cross, you were there with him, you and all of your sins. Please understand this. The, the wrath of God, had something has to be done with it. It just doesn't vanish. God just doesn't go, wrath of God, be gone. Oh, I'm just going to act as if there's nothing to worry about. No, the wrath of God is poured out on his son, on the cross. Jesus took all of the punishment that we deserve. God's anger has been fully satisfied. Not in anything you or I ever could have done, but in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And Christ rose from the dead, and we rose with him. Where is Christ now? We saw last week, and we see in our passage, he's he's seated on a throne. This passage says something amazing. We have been seated with him. God's grace is good. We are with Christ. When God sees you, he sees his child Jesus. Yes, we still got a lot of cleaning up to do around the house, so to speak, spiritually in our lives. But God sees a a child that he treasures and delights in, ever as much so as his own son. Why? Because we've been united with Christ. That's the accomplishment of grace. I think some of you perhaps need to meditate on that throughout this week. And then the purpose of this grace. When you read through your Bibles, there's some phrases to look out for. One of the phrases is, so that. Whenever you see a so that, that's kind of a a clue. Maybe circle that. When I'm preparing my sermons, I print out the text and I put a lot of space in between so I can make notes. And I always circle the so that's, right? And in verse 7, when you look there, we'll see it answers the question, why did God make us alive with Christ and raise us up with him and seat us with him? Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Why did God make us alive by his grace? so that his glory and his kindness would be displayed to all the world through his church, through his people. So that the world would know that God is kind. Paul speaks in Romans, he says, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. More on this in the next point, which... Well, we'll begin now. There we go. The last point. Living by grace. We've seen we're dead by nature, alive by grace, but we also, now we're going to look at living by grace. And the big idea here is this. We're not just saved by grace, but we live by grace grace now i think most christians when they ask them they would say yeah i was saved by grace god did this gracious work in my life i i sing with newton i once was lost but now i'm found i've experienced this amazing grace but then again many christians and i I see it even in my own life we do not live this way many christians live as if they're on a on a treadmill of performance in god's presence each day they live in order to continually continually earn god's favor or prove their devotion i must do good works to maintain my relationship with god i need to tithe i need to read my bible a bit and i need to fight for justice serve the poor and evangelize my neighbors and these are these are all good things right but they need to be put in their proper place we must not do them with the attitude that by my doing them successfully i'm somehow earning god's favor or if i fail on one particular day i've somehow lost god's favor I like what Jerry Bridges writes in Transforming Grace. I thought we had some more copies back there. It's it's my favorite book on this subject. I wish that everyone here would read it, but we're out right now. We'll get some more next week. But Transforming Grace. Here's what he says. Grace is no longer grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Grace is no longer grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. He's saying on that... If you, if you fail in, the, in your works as a Christian on some day in which you were thinking that you were going to prove to God how good you are and how much God really needs you, if, if you fail in that area, God doesn't withhold his grace from you because you've fallen short. That would just sink in. If we could just re- really believe that. Our relationship is secure. Why is your relationship with God secure? Well, it's not because of you. It's because of Christ and the work he's done for you. Christ's righteousness is now your righteousness every day that you live until Christ returns. And then you get it like in full, all right? So if you are in Christ, you are not on a treadmill. You are what? In Christ. Your relationship with God and your worth in his sight has nothing to do with how well you fulfill your Christian duties. Neither your success in the Christian life nor your failures in the Christian life changes anything with regards uh, to God's approval of you. And that's Paul's point in verse 8. He writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul is telling us what we need to hear over and over every day of our lives is that, that this grace is a gift, right? Right? You know, typically we don't pick out gifts, right? They, you know, sometimes we may drop some hints, you know, I could really use, uh, you know, that cashmere sweater, you know. Uh, But you, you know, gifts, God picked out this gift. He's the one who provided for it. He's the one who paid the price for it. He's the one who wrapped it up. All you did was rejoice and open it. Uh, Paul is saying you ought not pat yourself on the back for something that's entirely God's work. Look how good I opened up this gift, right? We would laugh at you, all right? There used to be a day when you had to save the wrapping paper, right? And then you could maybe open it up well. But these days we just rip it up and throw it away, right? All right, I think i gotten us off track. I hope you see that, that even your faith is a gift from God. Even the very fact that you believe is, is, is a gift. I know, I know sometimes as Christians we can get to where our faith is kind of like a work. Well, I've got this faith and it's like something I did. and I It can kind of be a works thing, even our faith, right? But it is a gift. And we see it with the impersonal pronoun. You see the, the impersonal pronoun Paul used, right? The word it there. He said it is the gift of God. What does the it refer to? Is it grace? It is the gift? Grace is the gift? Well, no, it's the whole thing he's saying there. It's the whole preceding clause for by grace you have been saved through faith it all of that your salvation by faith uh, by grace through faith all of that that's a gift your faith is a gift the fact that you believe is a gift from god that should humble us which essentially is what leads us to our next point here um Paul says because of this grace, because we're saved by grace, it should change our attitude and our actions, our attitude and our actions. First, our attitude. We see this in verse 9. Paul says that our salvation is not the result of our good works so that no one may boast. The fact that you've been saved by grace means that you are to be humble in your understanding of this. The truth is often, often Christians, we lack humility. We, can, we look down on others who don't believe and we, we see them in their circumstances and, and we judge them and, and we kind of roll our eyes at them and, and, and pity them, you know. And, and, but that's not the way of our Lord. Our Lord ministered to the marginalized sinners in his day, so much so that he was accused of being a glutton, uh, an alcoholic, and a friend of sinners because he spent so much time with the marginalized around him. Oh, that we would be so misunderstood, right? Christians often lack humility with other Christians. We, we tend to look at outward appearances, and so we evaluate other Christians by how well they appear to be performing in their Christian walk. And, and so we, we ask, well, do they look like well-respecting Christians? Do they act like Christians are supposed to act? Do they use the right Christian lingo? Do they excel at getting things done around the church? I came to Christ in 1995. I was 29 years old. I came kicking and streaming. I was an atheist. I I was like, no way. I was like, God is not angry. That was my story. And God, by his grace, made me alive. And I began going to a wonderful church. They ended up hiring me. I was their youth guy, and they helped plant this church here. But early on, as I was going to that church, there's a Sunday that I came. I was so excited to be there. I came, and all of a sudden, I hear this man behind me, this old gentleman, saying, hey, hey, young man, young man, take your hat off. You're in a church. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wore my ball cap. I wasn't even thinking. I didn't know. You know, I was so eager to please. I was like, oh, okay. You don't wear hats in church all right, well, I can do that, you know? The problem is, though, over time, you get built up all these expectations, all these things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do as a Christian. That man thought he was helping me, but really, he was just saying, no, no, your, your, your ability to be here in this worship service is based upon outward looks and things that you wear and things that you do. That's not the message of, of Christ. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is, Paul is saying, Paul is showing us that, that it's nothing but vanity on our part. For us to stack up our good works and judge other people by them, we usually stack up what we're good at. If we're really good at praying, we're we'll like, gosh, people just don't pray very well around here, you know. If you're good at evangelism, I just wish the rest of this church had evangelism gifts, right? Right? Or we'll s- people will say, but Mark, you just don't know. This this person's been a Christian for twenty years and they 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 still treat others like that. I'm like, yeah, we're works in progress, you know. Maybe, maybe we need to talk about your self-righteousness, right? That's what we see, unfortunately, often in the church. But what Paul is saying is that we're saved by grace, and this is to bring humility into our lives and how we relate with others. It also, we see here, um, not just an attitude, but our actions, okay? Our actions are now changed because of this. When we understand that we're saved by grace, we start living by grace and acting by grace. I like what John Calvin wrote on this in this passage in Ephesians. He says, "Hence it follows that works themselves are part of grace." Works themselves are part of grace. Paul writes in verse 10, this is beautiful, check this out. For we are his workmanship, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Paul writes that we are God's work, workmanship. Uh, that that Greek word can be used to describe like the process of poetry writing. I'm not saying God. I'm not saying that you're a poem of God's. All right, but but that's the sense there. A lot of work and time and effort God has put into His people. We're His workmanship, and and as being His workmanship, there's something that He's trying to produce in us, and and it points back to what we just saw in verse seven. Why is God working in us? Uh, Why has he created us to be his workmanship? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. You're God's workmanship. Your life is a display of his mercy and his grace in a world that needs mercy and grace. God delights over you as his children Yes, you, you with all your failings, all your struggles over sin, God delights in you. It's as if he's up in heaven, and he's saying, Did you see Mary? Do you see her down there? You see how her eyes turned to me in her sorrow? Do you see Mary? Do you see how she's see how she's longed so much in her heart to be pure? Do you see Mary? Mary, this is fictitious, Mary is God's workmanship and so are you. God delights over you as his, as his child. God is saying, I have put my spirit in you so that you could be more like my son whom I love and I love you. That's the point that we need to have in our heads, that we are his workmanship. And so the result of this, Christian, is that you and I, we need to jettison all of this false notion that we are to live our lives Looking good on the outside, and yet not so good on the inside. We are to be, what is it that we're to display to this world? Our need for grace. Our need to be saved by grace. Our our reality that even on the ongoing life as a Christian, I'm constantly dependent upon God's mercy towards me. If we do not do this, church, what will the world see when it sees us? It'll see self-sufficient, self-righteous people. People who can do what they need to do in their own strength. They're not going to see God's grace. They're going to see your works and your boasting about it. They'll definitely not see any need for a savior. So what is the workmanship that God wants to put on display? His grace in your life. So that people can come to see the, 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 the riches of his mercy towards you. When you act like you got it all together, people aren't going to see that. As his church here, Grace Church, I think that's what, it, what, what draws people in, is we're a place where you can come and say, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace and I struggle. I'm not the husband I know I should be. I'm not the wife I know I should be. I'm not the student I, I know I should be. It allows us to, to relate to each other in this way. That's a beautiful thing. When we live boastless lives, it points others to our daily reliance and dependence upon Jesus. And it's then that people see this workmanship of God's grace in our lives. So, Christian, God, uh, Paul says that this is God's work that he has prepared in advance for you. It's pretty amazing that we should walk in them. Before we walked how? According to the pattern of the world, we couldn't help it. We were dead. We walked as dead people dead on the inside, alive on the outside. Now, because of this work, we're now able to walk with beautiful good works that, that show the world the triumph of God's grace in our life and in our church. And Paul says that this is God's work that he planned in advance for us to do. Chapter 1, what did we see? From the begin, before time even began, God chose you in Jesus Christ. God predestined you to be his son daughter that's how he loves you before before you could have done anything right or wrong he chose to love you now what we see here in verse 10 he says before time began God has prepared good works for us to do and I'm determined that this is not just good works in general go be a good church that goes and does good things no I believe each and every one of you here if you're in Christ God has prepared for you good works that are to flow out of this relationship of grace in which you have with him and that can be scary but he's given us the power to do it. I don't know if you saw, but but in, in the passage, we, we see that he has prepared in advance for us. Here's an image that might work good in your mind when you think about these good works that God has prepared. Remember a couple of years ago, we had a huge snowstorm around Christmas time. I think we canceled services; It was like two feet deep of snow. You remember that? Well, I was in, playing out in the snow with my little daughters. And, and there was one point when I was walking around in the snow and, and, it was, and was making these Footprints in the snow and I didn't take big daddy steps. I took Little girl steps and I walked in the snow made these deep two-foot deep Holes in the snow and I walked around the yard and my daughters followed in my footsteps That's the picture of what God has done before us. He's gone ahead of us. He's prepared good works for us And he's stomped out the holes in the snow so to speak uh, he's given us his spirit uh, so that we can love him and, and, and serve after him and, and go and to pursue whatever he would have us to do. That's what God has done for us. I hope you see that even your good works are a work are, 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 are there because of God's grace. So we're to be humble and we're to be people of action. You know, I said earlier on that, that the motto of Grace Presbyterian Church is to be alive in Christ hope as we look at this passage we've seen just how wonderful it is to be alive in christ to be saved by grace to experience this magnificent work of god on behalf of us christians do you do you see your life this way do you see yourself as one who's been dead literally dead and god has come and made you alive that that god's anger is true good anger has been poured out not on you which you deserve but you've received mercy instead and do you realize that that there's a, been a but God moment in your life? But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive. You've experienced that, haven't you? And it brings joy to you this morning. You're probably thinking, oh, if I could just come more alive to that. My friends, that's the Christian life, coming more alive to what is already true in us. You're in a good place. (laughs) We all need to come more alive by God's grace to his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these excellent words of your servant Paul. We know they're from you because you have made them alive in our hearts and souls this morning. I pray that we would ponder and try to comprehend more fully your grace towards us. May we be a people who are alive on the inside and the outside. May we show this world the immeasurable riches of your mercy. Uh, May this world know that your love is great in so many ways. Uh, May we be your people who are kind and gentle and humble towards others and to your church, we pray. Amen.